passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, that they might come and anoint them. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting along the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. It is an absolute thrill to see you here and to know that there are so many who are joining us online. And we appreciate the fact that you are in a place of worship this morning because we know that your presence both here and joining us online is indicative of your spiritual interest. And for that, we are abundantly grateful. You've heard about the man who spent two years away in a foreign country on business. Just before his tenure there had ended, he began to think about what can I send my elderly parents back at home to let them know that I've been thinking about them and as a, as a keepsake of my, of my two years here in this foreign country. So he found a, a parrot that spoke five languages. It cost him $10,000, but he thought this is a present that they will never, ever forget. And so he had it shipped over to the States to his parents. He let a week elapse in order for the, the bird to arrive, called his father, and he asked this very simple question. So how did you like the bird? And his father replied, delicious. <laughs> and he said, Dad, that bird cost $10,000 and it spoke five languages. And his father said, well, why didn't he say something? <laughs> I think of that sometimes when I teach and preach. Because I realize that the message of God is a message that must be communicated. It's always a message that's been presented by man to man. As one brother has says, sharing the faith or the gospel message is just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And that really is true. There's communication that is necessary in the presentation of the message of God. Paul explained that in one verse, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 21, when he said, The world by wisdom knew not God, but it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. To save them that believe. So I'm convinced that it will always be true until the Lord comes back. That God's message needs to be communicated. And that's some of what we're doing this morning as we've gathered here to worship. I've also mentioned a couple of times, well maybe more than a couple since we've been reconvening back here in the building. That we are blessed by so many people who are joining us online. And almost, on, well let me scratch the word almost. On a weekly basis I'm hearing from someone by email, text or whatever. Uh, from, from some place that usually I've never heard of to tell us how much that they appreciate and enjoy joining us for our, our worship services on Sunday morning. And there's been, I, I think I mentioned the last time, a, a group, in fact, from Maryland who, has, who joins us. Uh, we know that we have people in Utah. And I received a very thoughtful email this past week from a, a lady by the name of Heather Riddick from Round Rock, Texas. I'm not making that up. That's where she's from. And uh, I wanted you to know about that because Heather tells me that she grew up in the church, but that she's been away from God and from fellowship with God's people for 10 to 15 years. 
And she's finding her way back to God. And uh, that's important. And, and I'm telling you that so that you will pray for Heather. And also, I would like, if I may, to dedicate and direct this lesson this morning to Heather. My records indicate that I presented this lesson some eight and a half years ago, but there's a reason why we're doing a refresher course this morning. She believed in me, are the words that were spoken by the man who eventually became a well-known preacher and writer. And he was talking about a teacher who taught only one year in the country elementary school where he attended. For the rest of the time there, while he was in school, she was the school superintendent. But she happened to teach for only one year of his, of his tenure there. And he'll tell you that it was her belief in him that set him on the path to greatness. In fact, years later, he was asked to speak at her funeral. And he said she was the one responsible for whatever success that he had attained. Now, those are some high praises, aren't they? That's some accolades to speak over someone at their funeral, but to say about anyone at any time during their life. I think that you'll find that to be a common ingredient among people who are successful. And I mean successful by God's standards and not just the world's. That's, that someone believed in them. It might have been a parent. It might have been a grandparent. It could have been a teacher or sometimes it's a coach. And sometimes it's just a friend. But encouragement like that can be a one-time gift but I want you to know that it pays lifetime dividends. It certainly did for the man that we've been describing. His name is Stanley Mooneyham. Stanley was born a few years before the Depression. He was the seventh child of a tenant farmer who could barely write his own name. He wore hand-me-down clothes. He took biscuits and, and fried sweet potatoes to school for lunch. And I mean every day because that's all they had to pack. And then he stood in, in food lines with his mother for government handouts to poor families. It didn't take Stanley long to realize what rung on the ladder of life his family had been relegated. He had to write his answers on a chalkboard. And the reason for that was because during those, that painful partnership with poverty, it had produced a miserably low, poor self-image in Stanley to the point that he, he had a, a stammer in his speech that was so severe that he couldn't even answer questions orally in class. He had to write his answers on the chalkboard while the other students were answering orally, and that, of course, made him stand out and made him feel even worse about himself. It was during that dark period in his life that Mrs. Beasley, the, the county superintendent of schools, began to show a special interest in Stanley. And periodically, she would tell his teacher to let Stanley come by her office after school was out. And, and that usually is bad news when it's the school superintendent wanting to see you after class. But Stanley came to literally live for those visits. And one of the main reasons was because it became apparent early on that Mrs. Beasley believed in him. And since his stammer made oral communication so torturous... Stanley decided, well, one thing I can do and not stammer is write. I'll become a writer. And he made that resolution early on in his high school career. And one day he shoved a few pages of his work in front of Mrs. Beasley. And she read it. And then she exclaimed excitedly, Stanley, you're going to be a writer. That's good work. 
And he could tell that she meant it. And so she told him, now you keep on writing because one day I want to put all of your books on my shelf. Mrs. Beasley didn't live long enough to see that dream realized. She was never able to put Stanley's books on her shelf. But the thing that kept him writing through enough rejection slips that you could wallpaper your living room with was that Mrs. Beasley believed that he could be a writer. The publishers might not think so, but Mrs. Beasley did. And that was enough that she believed in Stanley. Today, Dr. Stanley Mooneyham's name is on the cover of dozens of books. Every one of them, he will tell you to this day, is a tribute to a woman who believed in a little kid who was too shy and too scared to believe in himself. I imagine if we all began to think, and especially as, as, as if we're older, we have more years to think back on, and we can remember people and experiences that have meant in a similar way, a great deal to us. There are names in my memory file that mean absolutely nothing to you, but they mean the world to me. I mentioned her before when I presented this lesson some years ago, but I want to mention her again because her impression has not dimmed. Brenda Shellhorse was my first grade Sunday school teacher in a little town called Fairmount, Georgia. I don't remember much about Mrs. Shellhorse's looks, about her voice, her carriage, how she dressed, how she fixed her hair. None of that really was important to a preschool boy. Do you know what I remember about Brenda? I remember that she made me feel important because she believed in me. And then there was Don Ennis, who was my, my high school football coach. And, and his life had a tremendous impact on mine. When I first came out for the team, I weighed 145 pounds, and that was probably wearing pads. If Coach Ennis were still alive and could see me now, 200 pounds of raw muscle <laughs> with 20-20 vision. But he saw something in me that he found commendable. And he was not just my coach during my high school years, he was my friend. During our sports banquet my senior year, I, I want you to know, honesty dictates that I tell you that I did not receive Defensive Lineman of the Year Award. Didn't get that one. Or best receiver and certainly not athlete of the year. But coach had a special plaque made up that was inscribed with a special message praising me for outstanding character and influence and leadership as a Christian scholar and athlete. And he told me a number of times after I graduated high school in the intervening years that I had impacted him more positively than any other boy he'd ever, he'd ever coached. I'm telling you that not to pat myself on the back, but to say that here was a man who believed in me. And it made a difference. When my dad first asked me to make a talk at church, I was scared silly because I was introverted and still am. Some people have to be convinced of that, but I still am. But especially as a young boy, I was very shy. But my dad believed in me, and I couldn't let him down, so I spent some time working, and by time, I mean hours and hours and hours working on that talk. I practiced for weeks to get it exactly 20 minutes, and I eventually had it down to the second. I, I, I preached that lesson in front of a mirror, 20 minutes. I preached that lesson to the door of our storage house outside, 
20 minutes. I preached that message to our dog. No, really, I did. 20 minutes. And then I stood that night on a September night in 1968 and preached it to the Northside Church of Christ in Jasper, Georgia. Five minutes. (laughs) By the way, when I tell that story, I have some usually come out and say, I would like to hear that sermon. (laughs) I was horrified. That's the only way I know to describe that experience. I'd worked so hard on it, and yet I got it out in, in five minutes. And I began to wonder why the North Georgia region didn't have any earthquakes. Because I could have used one about then to swallow me up and to spare me from my embarrassment. I never wanted to face that church again. Never wanted to face my dad again. And I was trying to put some distance between me and the church building when my dad eventually caught up to me in the parking lot. He put his hand on my shoulder. He spun me around. He looked me in the eye and he said, son, that was outstanding. That was a masterpiece. I hope you'll be a preacher because I know that you have what it takes to make it and to be a good one. And he believed in me. And he did until the day he died. Michelle Horse, Coach Ennis, my dad, God blessed them for believing in, for, in an untalented, introverted little boy. You know, if I've read my Bible correctly, I believe that Jesus was the greatest encourager who ever walked the planet. And and the reason is very simple, and it's certainly congruous with the theme of this message. Jesus believed in everybody. He saw wonderful qualities even in poor performances. Even when people were at their lowest, Jesus saw something of worth in their hearts and in their lives. He believed in everyone he met. Consider with me, if you will, in the next few minutes, and I promise this will be short, a trio of, of losers, really, that's what they were, who had cameo appearances, at least two out of the three did, in Scripture for no other reason than the fact that, that Jesus believed in them. And it changed them forever. Their lives were never the same again after their encounter with the Son of God. The first one is the adulteress. If you want to turn in your Bible over to John chapter 8, begin with verse 3, and you'll see the story I'm about to recount. You know the story in all likelihood because she thought that everything was all over and that they were going to kill her. But instead they took her by force and threw her at the feet of of Jesus because they were going to use her as an instrument of testing and tempting Jesus himself. And so they set forth the charge. We caught her in bed with another man's wife. Now Moses' law said that she ought to be stoned. But we want to know what do you say about this matter? And really, if you think about it from the woman's perspective, at that point, she probably could not have cared less what he said, or for that matter, what they might have done to her. Would anyone really care if she were stoned at that moment? I mean, would anyone in the world really miss this woman? After all, the performance of her life did not stack up very favorably. Would the world, in fact, be better off without her? So many men, so many mistakes, so much pain, so much guilt... Another day and another mistake. But suddenly the Bible account says that Jesus was standing and he was staring and he was seeing this woman into the depths of her souls. And then he was speaking. And what he said was strange. He said, he who is without sin, let him be the one who cast the first stone. She couldn't believe her ears. Did he really say that? 
Well, he must have because the men, one by one, began to drop their rocks and they left. Every single one of them left the scene. And then Jesus was looking at her and smiling. And he asked, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, sir. And he said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And she knew he meant it. She came limping, folks, and she left skipping. This merciful man believed in her. And then there was the businessman that you can read about in Luke, the 19th chapter. I would encourage you to refresh that story in your mind if you haven't read it recently. This diminutive man was perched on a tree limb when he first encountered Jesus that day. And Jesus was coming down the road, the Bible tells us, and, and because of his small size, his small stature, he had climbed the tree. You know the story. In order to be able to gain a better vantage point and, and to see this man that everybody had been talking about, for a long time he had wanted to see this Jesus. Although in all likelihood he probably could not have told you one single solid reason as to why, but he still wanted to know who this man was because something was missing in his life. He had, a, he had a hole in his soul. And for one thing, his self-image was in the pits. And he was lonely. He had no friends. Not a single one. And everyone in this audience of reasonable mind knows that money won't buy you friends. And if it could have, this man would have had lots and lots of friends. For the simple reason that he had lots and lots of money. But he had full pockets and an empty life. And when Jesus came by, he looked at that man perched on the tree as if he knew him. But how in the world could that be? To the best of his knowledge, Zacchaeus had never seen this man before. Was he some kind of clairvoyant? Well, no. If that was the case, he would have known that he needed to steer clear of this run of a man. Anybody could tell you that he was an outcast in that town. But it was then that Jesus turned directly and spoke to the man in the tree. And if you've read the Bible account, you know exactly what the Lord said. He said, Zacchaeus, he called him by name. Come down because I'm going to be a guest in your house today. In all likelihood, his heart was hammering double time. He didn't know exactly how to say this, but he, he felt a, a, a stirring of self-worth that he had not felt for years, if ever. He didn't understand it then, and he probably would never fully understand it. But for some reason, this Savior believed in him. And then there was the preacher. It was hard for Peter to talk about for the rest of his life. If you've read scripture, you know Peter's track record. And you know that Peter was the light switch Christian, for want of a better term. He was a disciple that was on one day and off the next. If anyone should have been strong enough to stand up and, and to cry foul when they took Jesus to trial, it should have been Peter. But you know that's not what happened. In fact, he denied even knowing Jesus, having any allegiance to him whatsoever. Not just once, but three times. And the Lord had told Peter it was going to happen. He had already predicted his betrayal. And he let Peter know this is what's going to happen. But Peter didn't believe him. Peter believed that he was too strong for that. And so Peter had boasted, not a chance, I'll never deny you. Now these other guys might and probably will. But they're not made out of the same stuff as me. I'll die. Before I'll ever de deny you. And, and that's the reason why just a few short hours later, what he did broke his own heart. The thing that hurt the most was knowing that he had hurt Jesus. 
that he had that he had violated their unfailing friendship. Now Peter didn't know what he was going to do after he had denied the Lord that third time. Probably go back and renew his commercial fisher's license, I guess, and go back to doing what he had been doing before he ever became a disciple of Jesus. But he was quite sure that he was out of the apostleship, and he was 100% confident that he would never be a friend of Jesus again. The Lord had every possible reason to never trust Peter again. I mean, he not only doubled up, he tripled up on his betrayer. He didn't say, I don't know this man once. He said it three times. So Peter Peter was at an impasse. He didn't know what to do. But if he believed that the Lord would never have anything to do with him, he was wrong about that as well. The most exhilarating words that he ever heard were relayed to him by the women who went to the tomb that Sunday morning that Jesus was resurrected. They were read to you just a moment ago from the Gospel of Mark. Go and give this message to his disciples. And then there are these two words, especially Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee and he wants you to meet him there. Could that possibly be right? Did he really say, especially Peter? In just two words, Peter knew what Jesus was really communicating to him, that you made a mistake, my friend, but, but it's okay because everybody does. It's forgiven. And I have an important assignment, and you're the man for the job, and I need to talk to you about it. So please meet me in, in Galilee. Peter had promised so valiantly. He had failed so wretchedly, and he was received back so mercifully because the Lord still believed in him. And there they are, that trio of cameo players, a woman who answered her loneliness with her body instead of her brains, a well-heeled businessman who spent his days with greed and his nights with grief, and then an overconfident preacher who took a tumble. And the one thing they all had in common was that they all blew it big time. I mean, mistakes that were monumental. Well, make that two things. They blew it big time, and Jesus still believed in them big time. And that's really all I wanted to say to you today. If the Lord had enough mercy in his heart to forgive those people, those huge blunders, don't you think that he will do the same for you and me when we decide that it's time to come home? Now, you may have given up on yourself. I hope not, because I know that that Jesus won't, because he... He believes in you, and he knows that you have what it takes to make it. So if you need to come home this morning, won't you come while we stand, while we sing? My only hope is you, Jesus, my only hope is you. From early in the morning till late at night, my only hope is you. My only peace is you, Jesus.
this morning. Please do remember all of the things that have been announced that are coming up and participate as you can. We'll close now with blue skies and rainbows. Blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven are what I can see. When my Lord is living in me, I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my heart. Nevermore will I be alone since he promised me that we never would part. Tall mountains, green valleys, the beauty that surrounds me, all make me aware of the one who made it all. I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my heart. Nevermore will I be all alone since he promised me that we never would part. I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my 